And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is The Travel Show, in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be discussing travel. And there's a way for you to become part of that discussion. If you're in the travel industry and you think you have something exciting to say, I'll be the judge of that, but you can email me at fromertravelshow at yahoo.com. We also want to keep in touch with all the travelers out there, and the best way to do that is to come to our website, which is fromers.com, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S.com. It's all journalistically sourced travel information, which means that what you see there, nobody pays to have there. It's all from our journalists who are all over the world finding the best travel info for you. You can also hear what they have to say on social media. So follow Fromers on Facebook, on Pinterest, on Twitter, and on Instagram. Thank you. Pauline, in the world of travel, There has emerged in recent months a new term used to describe a new form of vacationing. The new term is the word glamping, G-L-A-M-P-I-N-G, a contraction of the words glamorous camping, which describes a far more elegant form of camping than we have ever known before. But in even more recent times, a newer term has emerged to describe a much more glamorous form of camping. It's a term that, that consists of two words, the words collective retreats, the two words they describe little communities of tented accommodations that also enjoy personnel who deliver meals to the inhabitants of those tents. Instead of erecting expensive multi-story hotels, various entrepreneurs are setting up a number of tents in a remarkable vacation setting enjoying uh, fabulous views. But these are not normal tents. They are big enough to cover uh, twin beds or even a queen-sized beds. In other words, in, in these collective retreats, you do not sleep on the ground as in normal camping. You sleep on big, huge beds placed within the even larger tents. And as an option, each community of tents is serviced by personnel who, as an option for an additional price, as an option, they deliver to you hot breakfasts and hot dinners to the inhabitants of those tents or or even cold box lunches. Now, there are currently five collective retreats in the United States. One of them is on Governor's Island in New York City, which enjoys a wonderful view of the skyline of New York. A second one is in the Hudson Valley of New York. A third is in the Texas Hill Country. And another is in or near Vail, Colorado, while a fifth is near Yellowstone National Park. All of these are on plots of farmland that can only be described as offering incredibly lovely views. 
so people enjoy all the benefits of camping, but without feeling uncomfortable. They they sleep in beds that are that are uh, quickly and expen- and inexpensively erected, and they enjoy all the benefits of outdoor living. <clears throat> now, the the smaller tents in collective retreats are still large enough to easily cover twin beds or a queen-size bed. They rent for $150 a night per couple, and their only drawback is that you must take a very short walk away to use a bathroom or the toilet. Mm. The, the larger tents cost $400 a night Per capital, but wow. the, per couple rather, but these have immediately adjacent private baths requiring no walk uh, at all. I see. And all tents, as I've earlier noted, are serviced by a staff that can bring you an optional breakfast or dinner or a cold box lunch. So, Pauline, there you have it the latest version of glamping, glamorous camping and a fascinating addition to the arsenal of vacations. If you want to yeah. learn more, if you want to get all the details, you simply go into the uh, the uh, engine, the search engine of your computer uh-huh. and you look for the two words uh, collective collective retreats, collective retreats. Let's move now to a less enjoyable subject, the fact that just this month The Trump administration has added a new barrier to the wishes expressed by so many Americans who would like to visit Cuba. This time, it's a new regulation that prohibits American airlines from flying from the United States to any Cuban city other than Havana. They will no longer be able to fly to a Cuban city of the sort of of which there are several that are located on the Cuban coast, up and down the coast from Havana, a policy that has been followed unsuccessfully for more than 50 years has been given another another (sighs) form. This is the latest. Now, who does it affect? Since the average American tourist wants to visit Havana and go on from there, the new prohibition will mainly prevent Cubans living in the United States from easily visiting their their relatives still yeah. living in Cuba. The new prohibition was apparently suggested by Senator Marco Rubio of Florida. And why was this new barrier adopted? Why? It is because the administration is aiming for nothing less than regime change in Cuba. They want to bring down the government of Cuba. This is something that American policymakers have sought for, for more than years. 50 years yeah. successfully, and it's been reawakened all, all over again. Uh. And who does it affect? It will have no impact whatsoever on the government of Cuba, right. but only on those many Cuban citizens who have become entrepreneurs of sort, who have set themselves up in terms of prov- providing you with uh, various items that you need as a, as a sure. tourist going. food, going lodging, Cuba, and food, the lodging, like. Food, lodging, yeah. As I myself have visited on my own two visits to Cuba, it will only anger the the average American Cuban. It will not have any impact whatsoever right. on the government of Cuba. The new ban is another foolish step that will do nothing to change the government of Cuba, and yet it will only be changed if the rest of us vote to change the current administration in the elections that are scheduled for the month of November next year. Those elections 
are now the only means of bringing some sanity into our rules respecting travel to Cuba. And in the meantime, the rest of us, however, can still visit Cuba by going to the various tour operatings that are designed to, and I'm quoting here, they're designed to, quotes, support the Cuban people. That provision, supporting the Cuban people, remains unaffected by the new regulations. And a great many Americans are now exercising their rights as freeborn Americans to travel wherever they wish in meantime. We should all ask ourselves, what gave the, the president, what gave our, our government the right, right to stop us from traveling? Nothing. We yeah. can understand that there could be a barrier if there were a situation of war. But, right. but if we are living in peacetime, why aren't we, as freeborn American citizens, not subject to the commands of, the, of who happens to be the president of the United States? Right. I, I, I find no such support for the doing, doing right. this. It's our right to travel. You would think we have a right to travel. And, and in terms of this policy, there's a definition of madness, which is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. For 50 years, we kept Cuba off limits to Americans. What did it do? Nothing. Nothing. So there we have it. We have a, a, another foolish situation. You know, when I was recently in Portugal, this is another subject altogether. Right. Um, I met a woman who runs Sandman's Europe. Do you know what Sand- Sandman's Europe? No, I don't know it. Now, Paul, Sandman's you might know because it's a port company. It's it's a, it's a maker of alcoholic beverages. But this is a different Sandman's. Or actually, it's a cousin <laughs> of the port maker who started giving free tours in Europe and then was able to expand. And I sat down and tried to get to the bottom of what does it mean, these free tours? Because they're never free. You always have to give a a tip at the end. But how are they arranged? How do they find the tour guides? How do these structures work? I don't think you'll believe this, Dad. Last year, Sandman's took two million people on free tours in, I think it's uh, 10 cities in Europe and also two in Israel and in New York City. Two million people took these tours and they have two historians on staff who check that their tour guides are talking in a historically accurate fashion. They have a whole vetting process for these guides because their name is becoming so well-known. I guess they charge a license fee to the gu- to the guides they allow to t- guide tours for them, but they give they put them through the ringer. They 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 test them. They make sure they know their facts. They make sure they're good storytellers. In fact, they only take about two percent of the people who apply to be but, guides. But Pauline, what's in fascinating. this? For, what's in this for Sandemans? How do they earn money as a result? Well, they do some private tours, but they also do tours uh, that or they also charge a licensing fee to the guides who give. I see. So that's how they and do it. And these guides earn tips. And their obviously. guides earn tips. We have to take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Travel Show. As I spoke about a couple of weeks ago, I was at the World Youth 
travel uh, conference in Lisbon where I met our next guest. Uh, and I was so fascinated by learning about his business, I invited him on the show. He is James Bridge. He is director of Outbound Programs for Inter Exchange. That's correct. Welcome to the travel Thanks show. Thanks so much for having me here. James, so tell everybody in a nutshell what does Inter Exchange do? Sure. So the way I like to frame it is everybody's heard of study abroad programs, right? right. It's a household term. Um, people associate it with a program with a set duration. You go, you come back, you probably have some orientation activities. But when people think of work abroad, they're not as likely to think of this as being a program. Or they an educational of, experience. Exactly. They probably are more likely to think that this person's moving abroad and they're going there permanently for hmm. a job. But there's this vast range of work abroad experiences out there uh, that do include orientations and all kinds of support and activities with a set duration where people are going for maybe three months or six months or a year. And uh, so that's our challenge is to, to kind of getting that term out there for people to know. It's not just um, something that you can do to move abroad, but there's actually set programs and sometimes with government um, sanctioned visas involved. So we uh, organize and promote uh, work abroad experiences, both for U.S. citizens traveling to about 13 other countries. And we also support a large number of international students and young adults coming into the U.S. for work abroad programs here. Now, I guess this is an option for students who couldn't afford to take a semester abroad and study, right? That's one of the key benefits is that it's a lot more affordable. I mean, you think about the the costs of doing a semester in college, add that to travel costs as well. Sure. You don't have um, course fees to work abroad. And as the name suggests, in many cases, you're getting paid. There's, of course, volunteer and intern options as well. But even with those, you're not paying for course credit. So it's a really great affordable option. Now, you are getting very good experience. For students, do do they ever get credit like they would if they did an internship? Uh, In many cases, an an internship could be accredited and they could be run through universities. Um, In some cases, they might do a work abroad program where their academic department uh, recognizes that they meet some criteria. And so sometimes it's a one-off discussion with their school. So it happens. Um, But these can happen outside of school. Um, Usually they do. We support a lot of recent college graduates and people in their mid late 20s, sometimes older. Really? Even what, what, what's your oldest clientele? Uh, well, our, traditionally, we've usually supported um, participants between around 18 and 30. Um, uh-huh. Sometimes we get older individuals, and that's not to say that they can't do programs abroad. Right. Um, a lot of the, the government visas are capped at 26 or 30, but to teach abroad, um, it doesn't, you don't have to be any specific age to go and volunteer. Right. So there are lots of options. Um, so, you know, we've had people inquire who are 50, 60, 70, 80. Wow. Um, but again, our, our tradition is for right. you, young adults. younger student. people. Yeah. We are speaking with James Bridge, who is the director of Outbound bank bowed programs for inter-exchange. And is there any kind of data that suggests that having this experience as a young person helps them get a, a better job, that, that travel abroad can make them appealing to employers? Absolutely. So again, one of the challenges with work abroad is that uh, because people don't associate this with programs, there's less data. There's a ton mm. on study abroad. So right. the Institute for International Education uh, has put out a couple of recent reports where they actually interviewed executives from 68 
countries, 90% of them cited cross-cultural management as their top challenge working across borders. Huh. 92% of employers said they're looking for the, exactly the kind of skills developed during study abroad. Openness, curiosity, strong decision-making and problem-solving skills, exactly the kinds of things that you can gain from work abroad experiences. Um, also interesting, the Alliance for International Exchange, which represents organizations uh, in the education and cultural exchange community in the U.S., um, they have put out a couple of recent um, reports on the U.S. program. 82% of summer work travel alumni here said the experience has helped their careers. Huh. 79% said that they uh, learned specific and valuable workforce skills. So right. it is helping people. Well, it certainly helps to know more languages. It, and, you know, if you're working for a global company, this could make them uh, feel better about you uh, dealing with your colleagues in other parts of the world. But I have to ask you, why would somebody go through you? There are all kinds of websites out there. My daughter used mm-hmm. one. She went to Japan for three months and had different little jobs. Uh, they weren't career type building jobs. You know, she worked as a maid in a hotel. She worked worked for a ski resort, uh, but she just went and did that. Why would they go through a program? Why do they need an orientation? And what are the costs like for that? Absolutely. Well, all of us have gone and done this. We've all lived abroad. We know what it's like. We know what the challenges are logistically. Everybody in your company. In our organization. Can't say that about our sure, listeners. Sure, that's right. <laughs> in our company, we have um, similar companies. And we know that not just the logistical challenges, but the emotional challenges. So by offering pre-travel prep, um, in many cases, organizing your actual job placement, mm. uh, orientation when you arrive, one of the biggest anxieties that we hear from travelers before they go is, am I going to meet similar people. Hmm. How am I going to meet people when I get there? Right. And we're going to introduce them to other travelers. And also, they're going to have huh. a chance to connect with locals when they get there as that well. That could have worked. I had a dear friend right after college went to Paris for a year and got a job teaching nurses to speak English. But she didn't meet anybody her age besides the nurses until like three quarters of the way through her time there. And she yeah. got very depressed. Right. And, and people think, well, no, I don't need to meet other people. I just want to immerse in the local culture. And of course, that's a huge goal. You want to know how to adapt and and work with local people and do your job. Of course. But it feels good to have somebody else to talk to about the challenges. You might learn how people got through certain um, difficulties when when you arrive. So it's nice to have a cohort. And that doesn't have to be a bubble. You can be encouraging people uh, to get out of that bubble among your friends. But that comes with a cost. So what is the cost? Sure. Well, it depends. Some some of these programs can be free. Um, In some cases, they could be five, six, seven hundred dollars often they're for, for us to send an American abroad you're not going to pay fees usually more than around a thousand dollars and that'll cover orientation sometimes your initial job accommodation placement. job placement it really depends we do teach programs au pair working holidays volunteer all types of things so they're all very different in terms of what they include but again when you compare that with the costs of studying abroad it's, it's much it's, less. study abroad yeah. can be ten times more or yeah. you know even more than that well before we have to go mm-hmm. give people your web address if people want to find out more interexchange.org that's pretty easy so go to interexchange.org if you or perhaps a young person you know wants to do this type of incredible adventure thank you so much James thank you so much
Welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my dad, Arthur Fromer. And on the line, I'm honored to say we have one of the nation's foremost travel journalists. She is Veronica Stoddart, and we're very proud to say that she is now contributing some pieces to Fromers.com. Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Veronica. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So you have a great piece on Fromers.com right now. It's called The Best Vacations to Take with Grandkids. And I understand this is a topic that's close to your heart. It very much is. I feel that this is one of the most interesting and exciting ways to travel. It's certainly one of the hottest travel trends right now. And that is grandparents traveling with their grandkids without the parents. So you leave the parents at home to get a well-deserved break, and the grandparents and grandkids can go off and have a wonderful adventure together and really have an opportunity to create some memories of a lifetime. And it's become so popular that there are now organizations that set up these trips, like one of the foremost ones uh, that you mention in your in your article is Road Scholar. Can you ta- tell, give the background of Road Scholar for people who don't know about this organization, and then we'll discuss their trips for grandparents and kids. Yes, so Road Scholar is a nonprofit travel association, organization, that is really the largest educational travel organization for adults. It's been around for many, many decades. It was previously known as Elder Hostel. Some people may still remember that name. Uh, Today, it's now been rebranded as Road Scholar, and that's R-O-A-D Scholar. And it offers all kinds of wonderful educational trips around the world for uh, adults, essentially. But they have been a pioneer in developing trips that are oriented specifically to grandparents. Hmm. And what makes these trips better for grandparents? So these are four grandparents traveling with their grandchildren. What do you have to do or what has Road Scholar done to make that kind of trip work? So they very cleverly realized there was a growing market for these kinds of trips some time ago and started to develop them. And what they are, they're opportunities for small groups of grandparents to travel with their grandchildren and go off and do something wonderful together that's with an educational focus. Hmm. And that's what makes them so special and so unique. Um, So not only are you learning together, you and your grandchild are learning together and having fun in that process of learning, but you're with your other peers. So grandparents meet other grandparents, the grandkids meet other grandkids. So there's lots of peer interaction along with, of course, the wonderful experience that the grandparent is having with their own grandchild. Right. And they have such a wide range of options in this category. I mean, you write on Fromers.com, you you could be on a safari in Africa or at the Grand Canyon or doing cooking classes in Santa Fe. Um, Roughly how many many, uh, opportunities do they have in this category? So there are almost 200 of these tours available now, and they're growing literally by the day. It's it's astonishing how many different options they offer, and they're all over the world, and they include active vacations such as hiking and biking and rafting. They include indoor things such as the cooking or going to the theater in in New York, doing a behind-the-scenes Broadway tour. Hmm. Um, They really 
are geared to every kind of interest and almost every age group possible. And so the other thing that's great about them is that each tour is oriented to a specific um, age group. For hmm. the kids. In so terms of the kids? Yes, in terms of the kids. So the kids are there with really their peers. Wow. And it's oriented to their specific age and it's appropriate to them and, and really focused on their group. That's really smart. We are speaking with Veronica Stoddard. She is one of the foremost travel writers working today, and we're very proud to say she has been contributing articles recently to Fromers.com, one of which is the one we're discussing. It's called The Best Vacations to Take with Grandkids. And this seems like a classic. Your number two choice is Disney Cruise Lines. What does Disney do that the other ships aren't doing for this demographic, grandparents with grandchildren? Well, of course, it's hard to compete with Disney to yeah. appeal to <laughs> every age, really, right. and especially to kids. Um, so I took a Disney cruise with two of my grandkids uh, this past spring and really discovered how well Disney does everything. Um, for number one, the kids were just enthralled with all the Disney characters that are on board. Uh, they're in the dining room with you. They're on the decks with you. They're go ashore with you when they do when we go ashore and do fun things. So there's lots of opportunity to engage with all of those wonderful iconic Disney characters. And then one of the really special things that they do that I don't think any other cruise line in the world does is you are. Um, scheduled to sample all the various restaurants on the ship um, throughout your stay. And the, your wait staff actually follows you from restaurant to restaurant. Yeah. So they get to know you. They get to know your preferences and your kids' preferences. And you create this wonderful relationship with the, uh, the wait staff. Um, and it just makes a special bonding experience. Yeah, and, and there are obviously kids' clubs, so the grandparents get a break if they need one. And there are areas that really are for adults on board these ships where you can go while the kids are in the kids' club, right? Very much so. There's whole areas that are just dedicated to adults. There are adult nightclubs. There are dark pools. There's a spa. There are uh, decks dedicated for the adults. So the adults can have just as much fun as the kids. Right. We are speaking with Veronica Stoddard. We are proud to say that she has written an article for us on well, a couple of articles for us, but the most recent is called The Best Vacations to Take with Grandkids. We have to take a break in a couple of minutes, but we have about 20 seconds. Um, when you went to Disney with your kids, how old were they? They were grandkids. nine and 11, so really perfect ages to, to really enjoy it. Do you think it would have worked with teens, or was that a, a better age for this? You know, there were teen clubs, and there were certainly teenagers on board. And, um, you and know, they were enjoying it, too. Yeah. Right, we will take a quick break. We'll be right back. listening to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my father, Arthur Fromer. And on the line, we have one of America's foremost travel journalists. She is Veronica Stoddart. And we are very proud to say that she is contributing articles now to Fromers.com. And you can read this one. It's called The Best Vacations to Take with Grandkids. And you warmed my heart with this suggestion, 
visit a national park. I personally feel that's probably the best way to vacation with grandkids, and also so affordable, right? Exactly. Um, you can drive to a national park. You can even camp out in a national park if you're really adventuresome. And, and for grandparents, they call that gramping. I, I get a kick out of these <laughs> names, marketing names. Right. The travel industry comes up with. But, you know, national parks are really our, our national treasures. And it's a wonderful way to experience something special with your grandchild that's nature-oriented, that's outdoor-focused. Um, and that's really to the core of what our country is it, is all about. And um, people, and there's so many wonderful national parks. Oh yeah, I mean They're all over the country. So you don't have to drive far. You can find one in your own backyard. And people often assume if they're going to do a national park vacation that the whole vacation is going to be on them in terms of planning hikes and planning activities. But there are programs in the parks to really fill your time, right? Especially with kids. Exactly. There's the free Junior Ranger program, for example, that offers history, uh, history lessons and environmental and geology lessons. Um, you can do all kinds of wonderful things in the Grand Canyon, for example. You can ride mules along the rim or even down into the bottom of the canyon. You can go rafting, hiking, biking. There's so much to do. And really the staff, the National Park Service staff, is always there to help you plan your itinerary. And they're the gold standard. I mean, these people are infatuated by the parks. That's why they became park rangers. They're so intensely um, uh, educated so they can really give value back. I mean, they're 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 the heroes of tourism today. Yeah, to, and to they're, my and mind. they're passionate about it. They really are. And they really share that passion. With All right. So a very different vacation is next in your article. You stay, stay at an all-inclusive resort. Uh, why do you think that's particularly good for grandparent-grandchild couples? You know, the thing is about grandparent travel is that in many cases, grandparents don't live in the same town as their grandkids, so they're not used to spending long periods of time with them and may not know exactly how to fill up a day, hmm. where to go, what to eat, um, how to, you know, plan the whole vacation. And an all-inclusive resort does that for you. It makes it a much lower stress vacation because all the activities are in one enclosed area, your meals can be taken there, and mostly you don't even have to pull out your wallet. It's all included in one price. So it makes it a much easier kind of vacation to plan if you're not used to spending a lot of time with your grandchild. Yeah, absolutely. And there, and as with, with cruises, there will be a club you can send your kid to if you need to have some time on your own. The next pick in the story, and for those of you who are tuning in late, we're speaking with Veronica Stoddart, a terrific travel writer. She has an article on Fromers.com right now called The Best Vacations to Take with Grandkids. And this is kind of another type of all-inclusive resort, which is a dude ranch. Tell us about how to find the right dude ranch for you and what the experience consists of. Yeah, a dude ranch is like an all-inclusive, but with a riding focus. And so if that's what your grandchild likes to do, it's a great option. There's a thing called the Dude Ranchers Association that lists many, many vetted options. They vet the members of their association. So you can find one in the area that you're interested in going to, and they provide all the details about it. Um, and really, there's a lot of, beyond just the horseback riding, they offer a lot of other outdoor activities, so swimming and fishing and maybe kayaking and ranching if they're near a water source. 
Um, and it's a, just a really fun way to bond with your grandchild. And one of the nice things at one of the dude ranches that you talk about is there's limited Wi-Fi. So your kid will actually, ha- your grandchild will actually have to talk to you. Well, and get them off their persistent devices. That's yes. what parent and grandparent is looking for. Get them away from their electronic devices for just a short period of time. Yeah, yeah. We've got about one minute left to talk about theme parks. I think a lot of grandparents might be intimidated by the thought of a theme park. Well, it can be intimidating because it can be physically challenging. You really do walk a lot. Theme parks are large. They're spread out. Um, But, you know, it's a surefire winner for kids. So if you're willing to do that, it's a great option. And we, you talk about uh, the, the classics, Walt Disney World, Universal, SeaWorld, Legoland. And there's going to be a new Legoland opening in, in New York State this year. So this may be one that you don't have to necessarily go to Florida for. There you go. Yeah, and, and they get a lot of people. There's a lot of ways uh, to, to plan this. Um, once more, we have been speaking with Veronica Stoddart. She is one of the United States' foremost travel writers. We are so honored to have her contributing articles now to Fromers.com. We hope you'll take a look at this one. It's called The Best Vacations to Take with Grandkids. Thank you so much, Veronica, for appearing on The Travel Show. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome back to The Travel Show. I always like to, when I remember, uh, to shine a spotlight on what we have on Fromers.com because it's such a great resource for travelers. And it especially is right now because we have a new version of an article that we've done before. We update it. We fully research it each time. I shouldn't say we. It's actually a really terrific writer named Reed Bramblett. And the article is called... The best and worst booking sites for 2019. And when we say booking sites, we're talking about hotels. How do you find the best and worst booking sites? Now, there are different types of booking sites out there. There are travel agencies like Expedia, like Priceline. Those are like bricks and mortar travel agencies in that they are simply sites that sell travel. And then there are what are called Um, marketplace sites. These are sites with powerful search engines that search what all the other sites have and then give you a list. You've probably seen the ads for Kayak. They do that. Unfortunately, I think they're spending too much on those ads and not enough on their back-end tech because they didn't even make our top 10. They're, They're not that great a site anymore. The site that we found was able to search and find the least expensive hotels. And these aren't only budget hotels. When I say least expensive, I say you might be staying at the Ritz-Carlton, but if you book it through this site, you're going to pay the least amount for it. Oh, my. And what did you find, Pauline? The new winner is is a website called hotelscombined.com. 
Do you know that site? Hotels Combined with a D at the end with of combined? Hotelscombined.com. Right. They found the least expensive prices in our survey. And we looked at 38 different cities, booking ahead, booking at the last minute, all kinds of different uh, options. Uh, you know, hotels that are actually long-stay places, hotels that are just for an overnight. Um, it, we looked at all different types of hotels, and we found that book hotels combined is the winner. They are a marketplace site. But interestingly, they did better than the more well-known marketplace sites like Kayak and like, um, I'm trying to remember some names of other ones, like, well, they did better than our last winner, which was Booking.com, which is now in second place. Um, We did find, as we found last time, that the website Agoda.com, A-G-O-D-A, does the best if you are planning to travel to Asia. But other than that... Um, it really, in order to find the best prices, you can go to one site. And the nice thing that that booking that hotels combined does is it also surfaces the prices for not travel agent stays, but booking from the hotels directly. Because sometimes to get rid of any fee they would have to pay to a middleman, right. the ho- booking with the hotel directly will get you the best price, and you're finding that on hotels combined. We have no affiliation with them whatsoever. This was a journalistically done test, but that's what we found. We have to take a break to those traveling. A hearty bon voyage.